Welcome to Animalia's podcast, where every week we're discussing something in the world of wildlife and climate. My name is Anna Lee. I'm James. And this is Nare. And this week we interviewed Jeremy Hans, who is a longtime wildlife uh, conservation journalist, uh, has a regular column on Manga Bay, one of our favorite outlets for reliable uh, wildlife and, and, and climate news and information. Um, and we're talking to Jeremy this week about, well, that very topic, how difficult it is to find reliable information around climate um, and conservation environmental news, just given how political the topic has sort of become in recent times. Before we cut to uh, Jeremy and, and, uh, and that interview, Nari, just curious for you, uh, how do you tackle this? Where do you turn to, uh, what is your trusted source of information uh, when it comes to these topics? So I have to confess, actually, um, although I'm well aware of how much fake stuff there is out there and how much fake news there are that are circulating everywhere from like the very fake stuff to more political kind of stuff and going like there's a whole range of that, right? Um, sometimes even being educated about that and understanding that I can fall for pieces and articles and images that are completely not realistic, which I'm really embarrassed about. So, and, and we're not even there yet with technology, but you can imagine like how horrible that can get. And then, um, when we come to articles that are fake by intent, uh, not so much like, um, they are just disguising some information to get to a different goal. Uh, again, I'm, I'm struggling there as well, like just as an outsider. So um, normally I would go to the source. Um, and if there are people and organizations that I trust, I would make sure that I get everything streamlined from there rather than just looking at different articles and publications. Because it's just easier for me to know. Like if you were to share with me something, I would know that's definitely something that's worth looking at and following and if you know if there are people that are involved in this who are thought leaders then I would definitely follow what they're sharing and 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 that's how I would gather my information because otherwise it's really really hard and the way news spreads is just uncontrollable so that would be my go-to rule with everything and um in this space as well absolutely and look we here at Animalia we you know we're you know sort of products of this as well um we had a newsletter in March, uh, the story shortly after the, the outbreak really, you know, went global um, uh, in mid-March. Um, you know, there was a story of the Venice canals and yes. the dolphins yes. populating there. And it was so widespread so quickly. And it felt so good to, you know, consume that information. And it gave you hope and, and gave you this, like, resurgence of energy at a time when there was so much fear that we, too got caught up in that and we actually included it in one of our newsletters and then had to issue uh, a correction a few days later when it was you know clear that that was you know propagated um for for good intent i don't think i think that was you know sort of fake news that uh had nothing but good intent behind it and certainly didn't do any harm but it just shows you how easy it is to especially when you know we as human beings want to find information that reinforces things we already believe and already want as soon as we find that it feels really good and feels hard for a sort of fact check in that in that case so we 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 ourselves have been um 
have been privy to that, uh, like, like everybody is. Um, so yeah. uh, with that, why don't we cut to the interview with Jeremy? Um, he is an expert in this, in this topic, and I think it's uh, some, a really interesting interview with him discussing, uh, you know, this very topic with a journalist who has spent his whole career trying to get the truth out to people. Uh, so with that, uh, let's go to the interview with Jeremy Hintz. We're here with Jeremy Hintz. He is a freelance environmental journalist. His monthly column for Manga Bay is called Saving Life on Earth, Words on the Wild, and he covers wildlife, climate, and conservation news. Thank you, Jeremy, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And Jeremy, do you want to share a little more about your background and work before we get going? Yeah, so I've been uh, a journalist uh, writing about science and the environment um, for a little over 10 years. And I got my start with Manga Bay and I was with them um, uh, first as a, as a staff writer. And at the time, there was just two of us. Um, and then I became an editor and then I eventually uh, went freelance, but I still have very close ties to Manga Bay and uh, do a monthly column uh, there. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I, I, I've been uh, had the f- good fortune to travel to a lot of parts of the world covering stories focusing on, on wildlife, especially when I'm traveling. Um, and and it's, it's, uh, it's been a really uh, fun adventure to do this, but it's a, definitely a, a, a difficult time <laughs> to be covering these kinds of stories. Absolutely. And I guess diving into the topic of how do we find like legitimate news, legitimate conservations, what advice would you give like everyday people that want to find and identify credible sources? Yeah. So, I mean, this is such an important topic right now, right? With this uh, coronavirus pandemic going on. And I even see in a lot of my social media feeds, just, just the most crazy stuff. Um, I think we're all, we're all seeking for information that, that, we want, I think we all want good information, but we also want information often as human beings that sort of fits into our narrative of how the world works. And the problem with that is that we, we end up seeking out information sometimes that more aligns to what we want it to be than whether what than, than instead of what the truth actually is. Um, and so, you know, as a journalist, you're trained, I mean, I guess, specifically to try and seek out some kind of truth, you know, some kind of uh, factual basis. And the nice thing about being someone who focuses on the science aspect of that is that I'm, I'm, I'm really looking uh, at, you know, I'm, I'm basically interviewing experts all the time mm-hmm. and, and getting their views on things. So um, it, it's a very clear line for me to be like, oh, well, who do I interview about, you know, mountain gorillas or who do I interview about climate change? You know, I'm, I'm going to interview climate change scientists and I'm going to interview experts on mountain gorillas or people who have worked with, you know, the species for 10 years or, or whatnot. So I think when we go to look online for, for sources, and I I think the first thing is just to realize that a lot of information online is, is misleading and inaccurate. And we kind of have had this explosion of, of sites that are not as trustworthy or that are coming at it with some very clear, uh, political motive mm-hmm. um and i'm not even going to say like political lean because there's one thing about like uh you know a newspaper might lean or a news site might lean slightly to the left or slightly to the right but like we're increasingly seeing you know uh news sites that come in with a very clear agenda right 
So I, yeah. So I think, you know, for me as a journalist, I tend to go to the places that I know have good journalists that I know I can trust that I know uh, kind of follow the, the norms of journalism and, and sourcing stories uh, and, and who they're talking to and how they're writing. Um, and, and then I, you know, and, and if I, if I stumble on a site where that is not the case, I will often then have to do some backup research, you know, I'll go and look up, okay, who founded this site? Where is it coming from? You know, what is its, what is its sources? What is its policies? Um, you know, you, you actually have to like, unfortunately in this day and age, you have to kind of research the media site you're on itself. If it's something you don't recognize and trust in order to understand, okay, um, is this something that I can believe? Um, so I, I think that that's become a really kind of problematic thing because a lot of us, uh, don't have the time or the energy or the mental space (laughs) to go around researching this. Um, so there isn't really an easy answer, but I would say, you know, I, I, I tend to go to the gold standards of journalism. I tend to go to places that I know have done at least a basic due diligence. And then I still look at it skeptically. Like I still read articles and I'm not just like, oh, well, everything in here must be exactly the way it is. Because I know that journalists are just people, but um, it, it helps, I think, to have those, those sort of core places where you can say, okay, these, this site is interviewing actual experts. These are people that actually know what they're talking about. Um, I'm going to get a generally good idea of what's going on here. And then maybe, you know, compare it with some other sites that I trust to kind of fill out the story. And that, and that trust, Jeremy, is you're, you're identifying that trust and establishing it based on the, the writer and and whether or not there's experts included in that article, that piece, or how, how are you, what's your criteria? Yeah. You come across a new writer you've never met, you don't know about. And obviously you, you know about a lot of the writers in the space, but most sure. of you don't. What, what's your criteria for evaluating? Is it just, Hey, is there a scientist quoted in here? Or yeah. Not? Or, 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 what do you That's a great question. So part of the criteria is just knowing how that media site operates. I mean, I'm not the type of person who's going to go, there's a lot of fringe sites out there. So I'm not going to go to those fringe sites and stumble on them and, and, and just be like, Oh, I'll believe this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's, you know, when you see something in your, if you're on Facebook or Twitter and you see something and you click on it, you think, Oh, this has got to be true. It's like, n- <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, it's, you know, you gotta be really careful about that. So you first want to go to sites that, you know, in the past you can trust um, sites where I know that they are doing, you know, your basic due diligence even if you disagree with what they're reporting on, even if their political leanings are slightly different than your own, like, you know, that they're at least sourcing these stories and putting the basics in. Um, and then, yeah. And then I think, I think knowing the, the journalist who is doing the writing or knowing the, uh, some of their past work is helpful. Um, you know, knowing how the editors works, but I, I think for me, it's really helpful just to understand how the journalist process works, because I think for you know, as a journalist, I think a lot of people are confused as to how journalists work. And for me, it's because I am a journalist, I, I know how this works. And I know that on, on the one hand, yeah, journalists get stuff wrong. Like we're humans, you know, we make mistakes. Um, but on the other hand, we do have a very s- certain process to make sure we get as much right as possible. On the, on the topic of politics, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, try to avoid things with a political bent. Un- unfortunately, one of the things that I think, you know, when I think about really sort of depresses me and, 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 and puts me in a bad state is 
the reality that something like climate change is even a political thing at all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because um, by being political, it means that it is it is controversial. Yeah. And that's sort of one of the bigger problems facing efforts to combat climate change is that it is political. But the reality is that it is. is yeah. That it is, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. there is almost it's getting to a point. It feels like I don't know if you agree with this, not or it's almost hard to separate out climate change and politics. You can't talk about climate change without coming across political. Yeah. Like how, what are you, what are your thoughts on Yeah, that? I mean I think I think we should be clear here that climate change uh was not political at first in the, in the way that it is mm-hmm. today. Um it was it was very deliberately made political <laughs> by uh you know a certain cadre of of far right wing um uh sort of actors but also mostly by money coming in from the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. So the way the fossil fuel industry approached this was, you know, pretty brilliant. They thought, okay, well, if we can't win the argument on science and on merits, let's make it as toxic and as political as possible by just, you know, uh, just pouring smoke into people's understanding of what's going on. So, I mean, for me, when I cover climate change, I usually cover it from a much more scientific aspect. So uh, I just I don't, I don't even I like, you know, it, I'm not going to quote somebody who's talking about it not being real or who's talking about it's not, you know, it's happening, but it's not caused by humans because there's no there's no merit validity in those arguments anymore. Those have all been disproved so many times that it's it's no longer even worth really bringing up on a, on a journalistic standpoint, in my opinion. Um, and I think part of what went wrong, too, is then the journalists, when they kind of got hit with this, when 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 they when, when climate change started to be made more political is that they went into this fake balance stuff where, you know, they would have a scientist and then they would have the scientist debating some random politician who doesn't understand the climate. Um, and they would, they would treat that as somehow equal, you know, and, and it would confuse people, understandably. And so I think what we need to do when we report on climate change is just to, and I see this happening slowly in some media spaces, um, but it's just to increasingly just treat it as if it's a fact. And if you're, because right. it is, <laughs> um, and if you're going to quote somebody who's, who's, who's denying it, who's, or is that, then you just like, you, you can quote them. Sure. But then you have to like, make sure you do your due diligence of putting beneath like, yes, but you know, 99% of climatologists, you know, agree that this is happening. And it's caused by X, Y, and Z. And, you know, all the nations, all the nations of the world have signed on to the Paris Agreement, except the, you know, except the U.S., which walked away. But, you know, everybody agrees that this is happening. You know, it, it, it's it's just this malignant force that is trying to turn the debate to slow our ability to act. Yeah. I'm curious for you, Annalie, um, you know, someone who is in Gen Z and sort of has grown up you know, what I call the over-information age. Um, how do you navigate for yourself how to know what you're finding and reading when you get stuff off Twitter or Instagram um, is accurate or not? Uh, what is the criteria you use? Um, just because you've grown up in a very different era uh, of... of, of, of uh... Well, I think it helps that I, like, I also studied journalism in school. So we learned early on that, like, for example on your Twitter feeds, even if you see something captivating, like in the headline, um, like do your due diligence and go to the link and actually read the article before like spreading the information. So I think for Mm. me, it is similar, like 
Jeremy's saying, like that extra energy, which most people I would say probably don't do this, but like taking that extra step and um, verifying like who is saying this, where is it coming from? Um, like, is there, you know, if it's like, for example, if it's a new species discovered, like, where is the publication or like the article, the academic journal, like where this is all getting published, like just verifying and going the extra step, I would say is like my strategy. Jeremy, let's, uh, uh, let's say outside of Manga Bay, which, which um, we know is great. And, and we've, we've referenced many times in our weekly newsletters and um, very oh, thankful yeah. Manga Bay is out there. Um, let's put Manga Bay in that geo aside that geo is obviously pretty uh like you know sort of established trusted brand as well mm-hmm. um what are three you know publications or sites um outside of those two that you would recommend uh are reliable information uh, sources of information on uh you know conservation and climate well i, th- I think you know that is such a good question because it, it's it's really it's really challenging um, because it often depends. I, I think when I'm looking at sort of straight up news, sort of outside of just the environment and conservation, if you want just sort of basic straight news, you know, places like the Associated Press, the BBC, you know, those kind of places that have this built in system and is trustworthy, like that's a good place to go. I mean, when I read climate change news now, I am often going to uh, particular bloggers or particular more uh more uh dense sites where they're getting deeper into it um and i'm not reading so much the mainstream news take on climate change because i feel like they're still sort of 20 years behind um on how it needs to be covered uh but i do read i i really like the guardian out of the uk um and it's one a place that i've written for and they've done an amazing job with their climate coverage and they do a lot of environmental coverage that's pretty damn solid um yale 360 is a very good site uh and see and sia is a really good site for for environmental coverage and stuff and those are all sort of niche you know their focus is environment climate those kinds of things um yeah i i sort of nari who's our typical other co-host um uh, couldn't join for this interview uh she's from uk and i joked with her in the past that for all the things that the UK has like old world backwards and it has a lot of them. Um, uh, they have two of the sort of best uh, voices in the guardian and BBC mm. around pro- uh, like progressive, you know, climate information. Yeah. Um, in a country where there are a lot of things that say that are not very progressive. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's always interesting too, because the BBC is very like America or Australia, where there is this huge split between people who believe in climate change and accept the reality. And then this other sort of maybe one third who don't. Um, and yet, you know, the, the England has this, these great, you know, the guardian, the BBC and these, these great places. And I think the, I think the guardian, as far as newspapers goes, is one of the most far advanced in how they're covering climate change especially for such a large mainstream newspaper. Um, so yeah, I would definitely recommend people check that out. What about if, if, if we were to sit in front of you, sort of, you know, someone who represents that kind of defiant uh, anti-climate change side, someone who firmly believes that this is a um, issue, you know, created uh, by liberals for 
uh, for liberal political reasons um, and has had that sort of, uh, you know, that that message kind of installed and reinforced in them through the places they get their information. What would you tell that person in terms of where to start their process of, of you know, kind of getting the science and starting to, you know, see the other perspective in a non-political way as best as possible? Like, where, where would you start that person? Sure. Well, those, you know, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of interesting research because people are just desperate to figure out how do you convince climate deniers or how do you convince Holocaust deniers, right? Like, how do you convince anybody who's denying a very clearly documented mm-hmm. reality that it is in fact real? And I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the research is is sort of uh, there's different ways and it depends. But first of all, in this hypothetical situation, I would have to know that this person was willing, because if they're not willing to, like, actually question their hardcore belief that, you know, that the climate change isn't happening, then it's basically honestly a waste of my time. Um, And it's a waste of their time. (laughs) You know, like I'm not there's really probably nothing I could say. Um, what I could do probably is call their, you know, their mother or their sister or, or a friend of theirs, because what it turns out, you know, human beings, were so community oriented, right? We're so closely connected to our families that the best way to reach someone like that is to use another family member to start that conversation. So me as a, as a journalist, you know, as, as what the, some people like to call, you know, the, the fake news or, you know, a member of some sort of illuminati or some shit excuse my language but (laughs) it's true um you know me in in, in sort of that realm they would immediately be distrustful of me um but if if you if you handed them somebody who that they knew and grew up with and loved saying hey you know dad can you just please listen to me for 15 minutes about why i think you should rethink how you're thinking about this you know that's a different that's that's powerful you know, I'm not going to be able to get through, but I think someone that they know would maybe be able to get through. And that, but they still have to be open-minded. And a lot of people, unfortunately, have we've gotten so politicized that we people are just completely unwilling to take in uh, the other side's arguments anymore. And what if I shift the goalpost slightly, um, and you know, put some, and, and we have someone who, uh, and then my actually my father sort of represents this um, archetype. Um, who, ex- who uh, accepts the science, mm-hmm. um, acknowledges climate change um, is real, um, but says, look, I'm just, I'm not willing to, uh, you know, to, to have short-term trade-offs uh, for, for spec- you know, speculative long-term sure. damages. It's still speculative. Nothing can be proven 50, 100 years out. Sure. Um, and I hear you. I agree with the numbers. Um, but, you know, I just not going to, we shouldn't, we shouldn't change our short-term ways for long-term speculation. Sure. Um, I think that's a great, and again, that's a, that's a really nuanced and difficult way because there's, there's still sort of this, yeah, I agree. This is all happening, but I don't want to do anything about it kind of mentality. Right. Um, I, I think, I think one of the ways is to try and point out that it is happening. Like it's not speculative anymore. I mean, look at the bushfires in Australia. Look at what happened in the Amazon this year. Look at the record rainfall in Jakarta. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, look at look at California on fire. Like we're we've we're, because we're all in the middle of this sort of pandemic now. I think we've all almost slightly forgotten, as we're very good at doing, uh, just how much the climate has been pummeling us in 2019 and 2020. Um, and it's and so I think there is a way to say, you know, 
I'm really glad that you, you, you are aware of the science and that you agree with it. You know, I understand what you're saying about not wanting to trade off long term. Like I get that, like that's, that's a valid argument, argument, but this is already happening. You know, um, the, the great barrier reef is dying as we speak, you know, people, islands are sinking into the ocean. Uh, people are literally dying in, you know, California, uh, in Australia, firefighters, heroic people are dying because of these increases in temperature have pushed our climate to to these new extremes. I, I guess, I mean, again, this is, it's such, if I knew the magic way to convince people, you know, to, to I, I would be a much better journalist than I am today. You know, uh, it's such a difficult question, but I think that's where I would start. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, and I, and I, I've, tr- I've tried to have those conversations pointing to the things that are very real, but you know, even those things are real, the uh, Australian bushfires, you know, the, the people that are on the far right, they have found their way, um, to spin that yes. as well. Right. Oh yeah. To be an anti, not a climate story. Yeah. Um, and really it comes down to, I think in a lot of, a lot of ways is like, where are you getting information from? Um, because, you know, uh, the media, you know, plays such a big role now, um, you know, uh, in sort of the, the way, the, the, how the, the sort of philosophies we, we form and we think and we live by. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the point we're trying to get to is like, you know, how to help people, you know, navigate, um, na- find the right information and, you know, naming the publishers and all that stuff is a, is a great way to start, um, you know, trying to understand if there's a, you know, actual science and scientists behind that. Although, you know, that's hard too. Um, For sure. You know, in this pandemic that we're going through even speaks to that because, you know, the number of, you know, sort of doctors um, who are actual PhDs that I see guests on Fox <laughs> News saying, you know, you know, it's not like these things are not as big of a deal. Yes. Or like, you know, it's, it's uh, like, it's just sort of like, even, do- even doctors and scientists, have their own political views and biases. Yeah. Exactly. I mean? like, yeah. And, and I think it's also, they're, they're human beings. Exactly. Yeah. And we're all fallible. And, but I think it's also important to differentiate between, okay, you can say like Fox news can find lots of doctors to say whatever they want, but it's, they're going to be harder finding epidemiologists, uh, right? Like, and, and it's the same thing with climate change. Um, you know, the, the climate change, the, the ones who deny it often bring out meteorologists, right. To sort of, this meteorologist doesn't believe in climate change and they're a doctor. And it's like, yeah, but they're not a climate scientist. They're, they're studying weather, you know, that's completely different time scales. Um, and, and so, you know, part of it is, 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 and again, this is, this is why it's so frustrating for the public. And I understand the frustration is because the public is having to do this hard work of parsing out who to believe. And when you drag on, you know, a random psychologist to rant about how the coronavirus isn't that bad when it's, been devastating you know uh they're not an epidemiologist it's not dr fauci you know it's not someone with the actual decades of expertise um that you would trust and so i I think fox news has done an incredible job of of spinning using x well first of all of, of making it seem like experts don't know anything right and we shouldn't trust experts ever but at the same time picking the experts that they want who are not actual experts in the what they're talking about but still getting them on to talk about whatever opinions they have and i think that when you start to see a news organization act like that that's when you know that they are a toxic source you know yeah i always joke fox news is so 
incredibly talented at spin. Yes. And, 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 and narrative that if like, if you could just wave a magic wand and turn all those anchors and, 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 and talent they have towards, uh, you know, towards the real science, towards uh, the fight that, you know, three of us, you know, fighting on climate change, we actually could have like monumental gains uh, because they are so talented at what they do. But and, and but partly um, the reason that they're talented is they're willing to sort of give up this the sense of of right and and justice and and truth, right? Like they're willing to 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 spin a malaria drug for months, and then all of a sudden, when it's proven that that malaria drug is is, is literally killing people, then they go silent <laughs> about it and they say nothing. You know, they 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 called the coronavirus a hoax. They called it no bigger than the flu. It's nothing. It's you know. And then once it starts to hit really hard, they, they change how they're doing it because they, they, there's no, they don't get punished for uh, what they're saying. And they don't, I mean, I don't think, you know, they're not using real journalistic values to, to try and get to some kind of truth. They're, they're, they're able to constantly shift. Yep. And it's happening now too, right. With, you know, pinpointing the, the origin. Yes. Um, It's, it, it, it's going to take months, if not years, to actually prove that out yeah. from a scientific standpoint. But there obviously is overwhelming evidence that it started in a wet market and from wildlife trafficking. But for certain political events, it's it's much more convenient to just say China planted this. Yes. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and Yeah, that I think that, that's so important to understand is that, you know, um, I've been reading quite a bit because this is one thing that keeps cropping up is that all the evidence we have, and there has been specific scientific studies looking at this, show that the the most likely thing is that it came from, you know, a bat or a pangolin in some kind of close contact, you know, likely in that wet market. Um, you know, there is zero evidence that this was man-made, like in some kind of lab and genetically modified and, you know, some sort of evil de- genius in China was... <laughs> And there's zero evidence that, w- that it was accidentally released from that lab in Wuhan. There's, there's just no evidence at this point. That's not, and, that, you know, as a journalist, you have to be careful because you can say there is no evidence at this point. Now, that doesn't mean there couldn't be evidence. I mean, China did, did, did do some kind of, you know, uh, took them a long time to sort of recognize the severity of this. It, it, there was some, I think, some cover up of how many people were dying and how bad this was being the first month. Um, but I, uh, but there's so far no evidence of any kind of cover up at this lab and all the genetic evidence of, of the disease itself points to, you know, uh, zootonic origin. And that is, is where most of these diseases come from too. That's like the logical choice. So, and you know, the thing is too, is when I'm, you know, as a, as a journalist who's been writing about this kind of stuff for a decade, I I've written and talked to lots of scientists who were, who were basically screaming into the void saying, you know, our relationship with nature was going to result in increasing and worsening, you know, um, viral diseases. Um, and now it's happened. And now they're trying to spin this in some new way to, to sort of, uh, I don't know, blame China for what, I guess, some sort of, you know, uh, weaponized illness, when in fact, this is a very normal transmission from one animal to us. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just kind of wrapping things up here with you, Jeremy. Um, I'm going to just ask you a couple of last questions. Um, one is, uh, well, let's, I was going to ask you, you know, what's the, um, uh, one book you would recommend, uh, for people that, um, you know, to, you know, 
get indoctrinated uh, with, uh, you know, whether it's climate science or conservation or something that you think is a sort of written in a way that the sort of common person who doesn't, you know, work in the field um, can understand and, and, um, and read uh, and mm-hmm. comprehend. Um, and then I also want you to, you know, talk about the, your book as well and share, share a little bit of that. Story Great. Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, I, I, you know, one of the books that I really love uh, is called The Son of the Dodo by David Quammen. And um, it's, it's the story of basically kind of modern uh, biodiversity and, and how we look at it and, and how species change and transform and, and how scientists like E.O. Wilson sort of uh, looked at how many species can survive in how much area. Um, but it's also much more a story about extinction. And, um, you know, as much as we talk about climate change, and I think that that's so important, the other part of that is that we're witnessing a mass extinction. Um, and so that's a book that I really uh, love because it's also David Quammen uh, is a, a brilliant writer. Um, and so it's a really wonderful read. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's also written a book, I think, more recently about <laughs> pandemics, which came out just before this thing happened, too. So if people are interested in reading about sort of animal to human um, viral pandemics, uh, look up David Quammen. I think it's called I don't know what it's called, actually, but I, but look it up uh, it, it, if that's something that's in people's wheelhouse right now. Great. And then, uh, yeah, share a little sure. Bit your book? So I, you know, I've been an environmental journalist for over 10 years and I've been able to do all these trips and travels. And so I've written a book that's called uh, Baggage Confessions of a Globetrotting Hypochondriac because I have OCD and I am a terrible traveler. Um I have like panic attacks all the time. I hate flying. I hate driving. I hate everything <laughs> to do with it. Um, but I love it when I'm actually there and, you know, in the wild, I, I, you, you know, you having, having done work in um, Laos, you know how amazing it is to be in a place like that, uh, to be able to see wild, you know, animals and, and to be with local people. So I love the actual experience. So it's really the story of kind of how I get myself there every time and the, and the crazy, uh, funny things that happen when you when you live with mental illness but you're still running around the world um and then it's also the story of our planet and of these species that i sort of increase like fall in love with over each chapter and and their story of how our planet is changing and and how they're holding on to survive and so it's a mix of kind of my own personal story and the conservation story and yeah it's going to be coming out in october but it's for it's available for pre-order pretty much everywhere right now Awesome. We'll uh, we'll add a link to it for the listeners um, on the on the podcast. And uh, Jeremy, what's your uh, just last kind of fun question? But what, what's your favorite animal? Your favorite wildlife? Oh, um, and, and it's so hard. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to go with uh, the selenodon, uh, which is uh, an animal unique to itself. Uh, it's this strange. Uh, it looks like a giant rat, but it's not at all a rodent. Um, and they live in the Dominican Republic, uh, in Haiti and in Cuba. And I got to see one a number of years ago and, and hold it. And that's actually a story that's told in the book. But these are uh, very ancient animals, mammals, that um, actually first evolved during the time of the dinosaurs. So they're really incredible and strange. And uh, that's probably my, my favorite. That's awesome. Very cool. Uh, are they are they um, related or uh, to the the capybara? No, so um, they're America? they're distantly related to like shrews, 
but they're like a giant rabbit-sized shrew. Um, and capybara okay. is the world's biggest rodent. So they're, they're different families within the mammal kingdom. Um, and the Slenodon is sort of so weird that it's, it's completely its own thing. Like, there's nothing else in the world like it, which is one reason yeah. why it's so cool. I mean, it literally sounds like a dinosaur. It, 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 it's, yeah, I mean. it's crazy. It spits <laughs> venom. Like, it has these, like, teeth that, like, will shoot out venom. And it it's, it's, uh, digs for grubs underground at night, and it sort of walks around like it's drunk. And <laughs> it's just an amazing animal. Everyone, if you're, if you're curious, look up Selenodon, S-O-L. E-N-D-O-N, and you can see pictures, and it's the most weird, crazy animal you've probably ever seen, but it's, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, they're such a delight, and I was so lucky to meet them. So it spits, spits toxicity, walks <laughs> around uh, in a drunken yep. stupor, and furiously digs for... Yes, pleasure. it's kind of like a... <laughs> it does sound like a few, a few people... <laughs> right? Too, yeah. Right? And it, they're very grumpy too. They really do not like to be handled, or they're they're wonderful. They're such a cool animal, and and it's it's fun because you know very, I get to when I get to tell people about it because a lot of people have never heard of this thing before, and then I show them a picture. And like, oh my god, you know, and that's what I that's what I love about this job. It's a great job. Yeah, yeah. I feel like pangolins are sort of having that yes. moment right now. Um, right. They've been you know uh, just sort of hidden from public eye while just being like horribly trafficked and um, moved towards extinction. And uh, now, you know, because of the, the link with COVID or, you know, the, the possible uh, and likely link with COVID, um, you know, they're, they're sort of having their coming out party of like, Hey, we exist and we matter, but there's also a danger yeah. too, right. Of like people blaming this animal and blaming the species and saying we should eradicate yes. it um, to avoid um, the pandemic. So, uh, it's it's a double-edged sword, I think, for the pandemic. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree. And the same thing is going with bats right now, too. There's there's some countries that are considering eradicating certain bats. And and it's, it's you know, the whole the whole, the whole whole part of this story is no, right. don't, don't touch them. Like, don't eradicate them. Don't touch them. Just let them be and enjoy them from afar. Like, don't eat them. You know, don't hunt them. Like, just that's the whole truth to me of this story. Is it's a good lesson in, in letting wildlife be. Oh, totally. I mean, look, when we had mad cow disease, um, you know, nobody thought to like eradicate <laughs> point, yeah. cows yeah. from the planet. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. Well, great, Jeremy. Really appreciate the time um, and insight. Um, we are actually uh, in a month from now. We'll send you information about it. But for our listeners too, putting on a digital conference with some of the top pangolin experts Ooh. in the world, um, and all the money is going towards uh, pangolin oh, conservation. That's awesome. So we'll, we'll send you some info about that. Um, but uh, thanks so much. Uh, thank you for all you do and, uh, and the work you put out there. Um, and encourage everybody to go check out your book and we'll, we'll link to it. In the thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. All right. Have a great, have a great you Saturday. Too. So we are back. Uh, very, very interesting, uh, kind of enlightening conversation with Jeremy. Uh, Nari, you couldn't join the interview live. Annalie and I uh, did the interview with him. So I'm curious, uh, you know, after you listened to it, what was your reaction? What are the things that stood out to you? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting, actually, because um, I was familiar with some of the um, 
you know, I've I've read some of the articles that he's put out there on Monga Bay, and um, I also prepared uh, for the interview beforehand. Uh, so I read some of the stuff and and the topic we we were going to discuss, but I didn't really expect the flow of the conversation the way it went from um, finding out the sources of truth in this um, specific area um, into politicization of the news and media itself, and then the topic of climate change and how that has been a great tool. Uh, for certain industries and, and it's been working um, so I found that kind of uh, fascinating how, how you got there and, and that's one question I would like to talk a bit more about as we were speaking about fake news as well is this idea of um, you know, no matter if any news or media source or anything uh, is uh, giving you a good emotion or a bad emotion the fact it's based on an emotion is already um, manipulative in a way which is what politics does to people it's it's supposed to be divisive and you know um i i have a real problem with this even from the side of um you know climate activists and people who are very vocal about this stuff i think as soon as it becomes almost too emotional you're um on the same playing field and that's where uh we are going to lose if it's too emotional um do you know what i mean like from the outside at least that's yeah. what scares sort me of. off I almost mean, i i guess it's a double-edged sword because making a making the topic emotional is also important for getting more people to uh to support it and take action um because the thing about about climate change in general is you know you think of the three layers of you know government uh private corporation and individual behavior and all three have to change it's not something where as an individual we can just keep doing what we're doing and just rely on those first two um you know, or, or vice versa. Uh, and so I think inciting some emotion around this is also the way to get people to take it seriously and make changes and spread it as well, because if it's too unemotional and then it just sort of feels like this distant thing that ah, doesn't really affect me, I'm not really that charged up about, I'm going to sort of focus on the short-term stuff. And that's always been the problem with climate change is the the real damage feels like so far out and when it does hit in the immediate and certainly it has this year with the australian bushfires and now with coronavirus uh amongst you know several other examples but those two obviously stand out in the last three four months um it's easy for people to spin those in another way like coronavirus is being spun as uh a china versus u.s issue um mm -hmm. uh for political political purposes and when you strip that, um, you know, you strip out that emotion, it's just sort of easy to to kind of lose sight of it. So I guess I, I feel I hear what you're saying, but I also think, you know, keeping an emotional pulse to it is important. Um, yeah, I think we touched upon this a bit last time as well when we were speaking about, you know, elephants and how to get people to donate more and, yeah. you know, be feel more related to that topic. And I agree with you, but I think there's a point where um, – when it becomes uh, almost too emotional where, where it's like overdone in a way like there's a range and when it's overdone people start suspecting um like a bigger picture or suspecting being manipulated and all of this also plays against it in a way um yeah. so, so, so that it's it's a really hard public policy issue and the ability to you know market it in the right way if marketing is the right word and make sure that the sources are right, make it scientific, but at the same time, relatable. I think there's so much work and talent that needs to go into this. Because as soon as 
it becomes almost too divisive and too emotional for people then they suspect that there's something there to manipulate them and we are very very uh responsive to this idea that there are bigger forces that are pushing the buttons and we need to rebel against that you know this whole um how all of these stories are born and then people buy into that so um i think yeah there's there's a uh, a lot to be done there to make sure that um, it's doing the right thing and uh, just playing on the right chords, basically. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, the you know going back to the sort of original, the main topic of this episode, which is around how to find trusted information. I think the reality is the way information architecture and distribution is designed today. If you are not emotional you will not break through the clutter, right? I mean, that's the challenge with a headline, clickbait-driven and social media sharing-driven mm. world of information is, you know, the, the sort of more sort of uh, straightforward and unemotional your content is, the less likelihood it's, it's going to get consumed. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that, that's a real kind of conundrum in, in the corner news in general on a lot of topics, but it impacts this topic as well as where do you go? Mm-hmm. Political acts, you're not taking a stance, mm-hmm. right? Uh, most likely that piece of content won't get consumed. So the, the other interesting side of this debate around you know, facts versus sort of emotions of being political is also just the nature of how we consume our information today. And that if you are, you know, if you're not eliciting an emotional response, if you don't have a, a clicky headline, if you're not being polarizing enough to the point where people are going to share it, uh, whether, the, you know, whether that's they hate it or they, they like it, um, you're not going to get seen. Like the, the sort of straight arrow apolitical, let's not offend anybody, let's just put out the information and the facts type of information now does not get consumed. Yeah. Because the, the, we have such an abundance of information that you have to be polarizing. That's why you see in the news where, you know, all the, you know, the, the biggest news providers both are very political on their respective sides because that's the only way to succeed in that business. People are always mm. asking, why isn't there, you know, just sort of a middle of the road, just fact-based news source that doesn't take a stance a la maybe like Associated Press. And it's like, well, because today that won't succeed. That's just, you're not going to break through the algorithms on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you're not going to get shared. Uh, you're, you're just not going to get seen if you just try to be fact-based and not take a, a stance. And so this makes it really hard on a topic like climate and, and you know, conservation and environmental science to not be political when, you know, that's the only way to actually get the information out there. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a much bigger topic that we're kind of getting into, but the whole idea, I mean, the whole monetization mechanism of the internet is broken because it's attention-based and ads-based, so it's going to be like that. And, And even if we look at the political leaders or people who get their voices heard or basically the people who relate to the you know, from the lowest to the highest of human emotion. So uh, that's definitely true. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, um, another way to do this is just to pour more resources or money into it, right? 
to to pass through the algorithms even writing emotional pieces just knowing it's going to get the job done um yeah but that also requires um yeah it's kind of a double-edged sword because you need the attention to have enough resources and vice versa so um, you know we could say like why don't we ask you know twitter and facebook like you know two of the biggest essentially information news providers like in the united states why don't we ask them to you know prioritize fact-based climate conservation news and push that through. They have the ability to do it, but the problem is they also have a business to run and that business has to keep growing and growing as a publicly traded company. And they have the concern, which is just that if, if we push that and, you know, we're now seeing too far, you know, left on the political spectrum, we're going to alienate too many people and our business is going to hurt from it. And it's just, you know, it just comes back to the same problem of the sort of economics of, of, of news and information today. It's just like mm. completely broken. And, and I wish I had, if I had the answer and I know how to fix that, you know, I wouldn't be on this podcast with you. I would just be doing that. Right. Um, yeah. And so I, I hate posing things when I don't, you know, you don't, I don't have a great solution in mind, uh, but this is one of those areas where I, I bang my head against the wall over and over again of, trying to figure out, you know, how to take us off this path. And, and so far, nothing has really, has really made it clear to me uh, of how, how to do that. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a long way for us to move into that new, new model of making money on the internet. There are some um, other kind of ways like subscriptions and so on, but, you know, one person can only afford a certain amount of subscriptions, right? So yeah, the subscriptions yep. are like, they're not going to, there's not like, yeah, there's, there's too many people that can only can afford zero or maybe one or two. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's, uh, think about the, the people that subscribe to, you know, the New York times, it's a very, very small percentage. And, and, and they're also like the least susceptible to like, um, yeah, to, to the, um, worst type of kind of fake information that's specifically aimed at um yeah <laughs> they are not your worry basically and it's, it's just too small uh the numbers are just too small and you could never really think that uh, it would be a mass market publication and everybody would be ready to pay but i mean there are some people who are working on this and trying to innovate on the model um you know creating some sort of um network-based currencies and other other things which are very very nascent nobody really knows it will if that will ever work but um you know we'll see um yeah. how that you know i guess there's you know there's gonna have to be a sort of global chain movement and leadership uh to you know you know get people in charge um that take this seriously and it might you know it might take something like coronavirus and and maybe even a worse pandemic to get us there. I mean, at some point, you know, things will become dire to the, to the, to the point where it's just, where regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you're going to have, you're going to recognize you have to take this seriously. Like as soon as the, the threats and the dangers and the loss are, are immediate, not long-term, you got to figure like the survival instinct of, 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 of our species of being a human is going to kick in. The, the 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 question though is like if if we wait for that to happen is it too late like have we already crossed the point of no return 
And that's what a lot of scientists talk about. Um, but, you know, the, I, it, it might take, you know, something like coronavirus. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting. One of the things I'm, I'm really sort of on the edge of my seat about is when we do get out of this on a global level, and it might, it might be the summer, it might be the fall, it might not be till next year. But whenever that happens, is it, is it going to wake up enough people to recognize it's like, hey, we have to start making changes and we have to, uh, you know, on, on, on topics like the environment and, and climate, we can't, this can't be a political issue. We, we you know, we, we can have our political battles in other areas, uh, but not this one. This one, now the threat is immediate. Now the threat is felt by everybody. Um, and, and we'll see if this, if this pandemic has some of that effect. Yeah. Um, I would like to think so that that would happen. Um, I think that might affect organizations, companies and, and governments more than uh, the average consumer, unfortunately, because uh, my expectation is that um, <laughs> the average person is just very hungry to go back to doing their shopping and going to their restaurants and consuming the food they were consuming. And I think that habit is really, really hard to get out of some of the systems so I don't know maybe I'm being very conservative about this but I think uh, the change is probably going to happen if it is inside certain organizations who are going to think of the next kind of uh, catastrophe and how they need to have continuity and plan for this and preempt this and governments and um, I mean that's not a bad thing because that's where the resources are Uh, but I'm not really relying on the average person at all yeah well, I guess we'll we'll see. Uh, it's it's one of many things that uh, will be interesting to follow coming out of um, coming out of this pandemic for sure. Yeah. And maybe you know if there is a change, maybe that can be part of the silver lining. You know, out of this this tremendous loss and um, pain. You know, that's that's that the whole world is feeling right now. True. True. All right. Well, uh, that'll do it for this episode. Um, we'll list in the podcast link. Uh, some of the resources that Jeremy mentioned that he turns to for reliable information um, and also as well to his book, which we recommend checking out. And uh, yeah, let us know, you know, if you have any ideas of your own or there any news sources or information sources on, on climate, um, you know, environment that, that you, you have found very reliable or any, any news sources or journalists. I think we'd love to make a sort of repository for people um, that they can always access um uh do, doing our part for at least the folks that can discover us um in the in the you know as a small little uh pebble of sand in the in the sea of information out there yeah um i think we need to rely on each other to get the best information and keep sharing it and then we'll have the network effect that's needed yeah cool well thanks for everybody for listening um and stay tuned for more stuff from Animalia um, next week. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye.